Wonderful singing. Please open your bulletin to the notes. This morning's message, instead of looking at one text, we'll be looking at a number of texts. To try to cover the issue of baptism and what it means and who is it for and what does it do and, and all of that. We're going to be bouncing around a little bit. And there's some key texts I'll ask you guys definitely to follow along with. And some of you may want to just sit and listen and, and then the references are in the bulletin and you can check my math later or if you want to follow along, you're invited to do so as well. But we will be moving around a bit just by the nature of what we're doing. And what we're doing, pausing here, is this. Pausing through, normally we go book by book, verse by verse through the Bible. We're in the middle of a study on the book of Titus. But it is helpful periodically to stop and teach on a topic, teach on something. What does it mean? What is this? Things that aren't necessarily going to show up immediately in a text. And so with seven of our own being baptized this morning, the elders and I thought it was a good idea and hoped it would be a blessing for you to examine this issue of what is baptism. And we're going to do it in four points in understanding baptism. We're going to ask the question, what does baptism mean? What does baptism do? Who is baptism for? And is baptism optional? Those are the four points we're going to look at. Um, and we're going to have a lot of ground to cover, so let's have a word of prayer and we will dive right in. Lord God, we just praise you for who you are. We praise you that through your word we can behold our God, that we can see you with eyes of faith. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we will see you face to face and no longer through a glass dimly. But Lord, this side of the eschaton, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would build us up in your faith through your word. And as we look at this issue of baptism, that you would glorify yourself, purify your church, and you would instruct your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we will dive in with our first question. What does baptism mean? What does baptism mean? It, every church that calls itself a Christian church has some form of baptism. And there's a lot of discussion and debate on it, and a lot of people don't even know why they do what they do. As I said earlier this morning, probably the most popular position, the most widely held position in the church is that of infant baptism. But even among infant Baptists, there's disagreement over what that accomplishes, what that does. The Church of Rome would say that infant baptism removes original sin. Um, and then there's Baptist churches or believers baptism. Those are sort of the two dividing lines. There's, there's churches that baptize infants. There's churches that baptize believers. And then even among that, there's disagreement over what this baptism accomplish. And so what does baptism mean? And I think the starting place is trying to understand what it is exactly. But before we even get to that, there's something even more fundamental we need to understand. And this is crucial. It's why I've underlined it in the bulletin, that there are two distinct baptisms in the New Testament. There are two distinct baptisms. In fact, I think a lot of the confusion over the issue of baptism arises from a failure to distinguish that. If you'd open your Bibles to Acts chapter 11, this point can be made in a number of places, but I think most clearly in Acts chapter 11. And the sig significance of this point that there are two baptisms. There's water baptism, and there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they are distinct, separate things. is crucial because 
Then when you're reading about baptism elsewhere in the New Testament, you need to ask yourself, is Paul talking about water baptism, or is he talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I think a lot of the confusion comes from, from colluding those concepts. So in Acts chapter 10, Peter has been fasting and praying up on his rooftop, and the Lord sends him a vision of a sheet with animals on it, animals that are unclean by the Levitic code, and the Lord tells him to arise and kill and eat, and Peter says, no, I wouldn't defile myself, and the Lord says, no, arise, kill and eat, and three times this happens, and finally Peter gets it, and he's obedient, and immediately thereafter, messengers come from a man named Cornelius, and they, they want Paul to come down to him, and Paul goes down to Cornelius, and we'll pick this up as Paul is now speaking to the first Gentile converts, or who will become the first Gentile converts to Christianity, and in Acts 10, 44, it's marvelous testimony. While Peter was still saying these things, speaking the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the words. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now, jump over to chapter 11. Because this isn't entirely clear. Here we've got water baptism and we've got this Holy Spirit coming upon Cornelius and his household. But when Peter goes back to Jerusalem in chapter 11 to inform the Jerusalem church of what happened, he tells us what we are to make of the Holy Spirit coming upon Cornelius. And pick it up in verse 15 of chapter 11. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You see that? Peter has just informed us. He has just interpreted the event. We now know that what happened in chapter 10 was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it happened prior to water baptism. They're not the same thing. So in Acts chapter 10, we see Cornelius and his household first baptized by the Holy Spirit. And then afterwards, Peter commands that they be baptized with water. Now, we can look at this in other passages to see the distinction, but this is probably the clearest to see that they're two different things. And this is key. Hold on to that, because this is key in moving forward, that there is the physical baptism and there is the spiritual baptism. So that's, that's our first point, two distinct baptisms. The second thing is just what does this word mean? It doesn't help that our Bible translations don't translate the word at this point. I'm guessing in, a, in, an, in an attempt not to pick sides over the controversy of baptism, they've just transliterated it. The Greek word is baptizo, and they just bring it across. They don't translate it. But the word translated means, and here is your blanks, to dip or to immerse or to dunk even. That's what the word means. Even dyed in the wool infant baptizers. And the reason why I say that is because the, the reason why sprinkling became prominent is it's kind of traumatic to take a newborn baby or a few-day-old baby and dunk it underwater. It's far more convenient to sprinkle that baby with water. Um, but even John Calvin, who was died, he's committed, staunch infant baptizer, it freely admits the word baptize means dunk, dip, from Calvin's Institutes. Um, the word baptize means to immerse. And it's clear that the rite of immersion was observed in the ancient church. So that point's not under dispute. 
We can see that really clearly in Acts 8, 36 with the Ethiopian eunuch. The eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water. See that word? They went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. So Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and they came back up out of the water. In other words, neither of them thought that it was possible to be baptized without a water source. And if sprinkling were the proper mode, be rather easy. You take a flask of water, you take a cup, you do some sprinkling. No, they saw a water source. They went down into the water. They came up out of the water. It's also clear in the spiritual sense in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, speaking of the spiritual baptism. And again, this is why we started with that point that there are two distinct baptisms. Clearly in Acts, we're looking at the water baptism. But I think equally clearly in 1 Corinthians 12, we're looking at the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the dipping, or the immersing of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. There is one Spirit. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all made to drink of one Spirit. And what Paul is saying is this. In one Spirit we were immersed. We were dipped. We weren't sprinkled. We were completely enveloped and surrounded into Christ and into his body is this notion of change of sphere. You were once of the world. You have now been placed, dipped into Christ. You've been baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ. And, and so when we went through John's gospel, we would refer to a dunking John. It just doesn't have that same ring to it. You get, you, you get why people stick with the word baptized because, you know, first dunking church of Martinsdale doesn't you know, have that same ring to it, um, does it? But that's what the word means. It means to dip, to dunk. In the book of Acts, when there's that shipwreck, the ship was baptized. And you better believe the sailors wished that meant it was only a sprinkling. <laughs> but it was a sinking. Because they were baptized into the sea. And so that's what baptism means. The word means to dip or to immerse. And it's clear from both its spiritual referent in 1 Corinthians and from the physical referent that it, it, that's what it pictures. Calvin will go on to say, even though that it means to dip, it's, it's okay to sprinkle. But he freely admits, yeah, the word means to dip, to immerse, to dunk. So now we get to the real point. What exactly does it mean or picture then? Water baptism serves as a visible sign of spirit baptism. And this is the relationship. Water baptism serves as a visible sign of spiritual baptism. So Cornelius and his household are baptized by the Holy Spirit. Peter gets this and says, now we've got to give them the sign that accompanies the spiritual baptism. That's the concept. And so both in the physical sign, the, the water baptism, and in the, the spiritual reality, there's imagery pictured here. Three things at least we can look at that baptism pictures. So this baptism, water baptism in particular, is a sign, is a picture of what's going on spiritually. And first, it's an appeal to God for cleansing. It is an appeal to God for cleansing. So listen to 1 Peter 3.31. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. 
not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So notice how Peter makes the distinction. He says, baptism saves you, not the water baptism, not the removal of dirt from the body. That, that's not saving, but rather the crying out to God, the appeal for a clean conscience, the crying out to God for forgiveness that, that baptism pictures. You know, all of us bathe, at least I hope we do, but only those who are, who are frail need help bathing. Most of us bathe ourselves, but in baptism, no one baptizes themselves. Even the Lord Jesus Christ did not baptize himself, but was baptized under John. And so part of the picture is of our helplessness, of our weakness. We need a clean conscience. We need cleansing. But it must be done to us. We must be cleansed. We do not cleanse ourselves. We must be washed. We do not wash ourselves. And so the baptism, the water baptism, pictures this cleansing of the Spirit of God upon us, which is invisible. That's the first thing baptism serves as. An appeal to God for cleansing. Secondly, if you turn to Romans 6, baptism pictures a sharing in Christ's death and resurrection. A sharing or participating in Christ's death and resurrection. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says this, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by a baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self is crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. And so what Paul is saying in here, and again, you've got to ask the question, is Paul talking about the spiritual baptism or the water baptism? And based on the effect and the context, it's clear he's talking about this baptism of the Holy Spirit, which water baptism pictures, what we realize and what we learn then is that water baptism pictures dying to who you were, sharing in Christ's death, and sharing in the being raised in newness of life. Just as Christ died and rose again, we who are saved, we are who are united to him by faith, we've died to who we were. And in Christ, we have new life, and we are raised. And so a little later this morning, you will see seven of our brothers and sisters go underwater, symbolizing death, and come up, symbolizing this new life, sharing in Christ's death and resurrection. And finally, the third thing that I can see that baptism pictures or means is entering into the body of Christ. Entering or entrance into the body of Christ. Now, the spiritual baptism really places us in the body of Christ. We've already seen that in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. So by the work of the Holy Spirit, in, in dipping us, immersing us, placing us in Christ, we are placed into his body, which is the church. And this is sort of the universal placement. But we also see in the sign of baptism, in Acts, say, Acts 4.21, that baptism in the, in the first century was frequently the, the visible sign of the entrance into the body of Christ. So after Peter gives his sermon at Pentecost, and he calls on those who listen to repent and believe and be baptized. In Acts 
2.41, we read this. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And the implication is to the record, to the number. There's a record keeping. If you keep reading through Acts, the number grows as people are added to their number. So how did the early first century church know who was of them and who wasn't? How did Peter and the apostles know who was part of the church? Well, it was the people who came forward and were baptized. It was the visible sign of their entrance into the church. So spiritually, the Spirit's baptism is what brings us into the body of Christ, and frequently, and, and in the first century and in the Bible, in the New Testament, nearly always, baptism was the entrance gate, the initiatory rite entering into the local church. So to review, baptism symbolizes an appeal to God for cleansing, a sharing in Christ's death and resurrection, and an entrance into the body of Christ. So that's, that's the picture in baptism, at least those three things. Second, we'll ask the question, what does baptism do? What does baptism do or what does baptism accomplish? Does it accomplish anything? And, and here is where you will get lots of disagreement. Lots of disagreement. Now, first in point A, I'll put forward what I believe, what the elders, what this church believes, that baptism serves as a visible, public sign of an invisible spiritual reality. And that bears repeating. Baptism serves as a visible, public sign of an invisible spiritual reality. That's what we saw in Acts 10. Peter was convinced that the invisible spiritual reality had occurred for Cornelius and his household, and so after that, they gave them the visible sign of that spiritual reality. So we do not believe here that baptism saves, that baptism um, is some empowering work of grace by God, which brings us to our next question, is water baptism necessary for salvation? And, and the, the blank there is no. Just write it all caps, no. No, but this is important, and this is not an area of small disagreement in, in, amongst groups of Christians. Where I grew up in New England, the uh, Boston Church of Christ was really rabid on this point. If you weren't baptized and generally by them in their water, you weren't a Christian, you weren't saved. And there are churches today that have similar teaching, that water baptism is necessary for salvation. Now, I think the confusion arises from the failure to distinguish that there are two different baptisms. So if you go back to Romans 6, you don't need to go there, but if you were to go back there and read it, and you think Paul's just talking about water baptism, you might very well conclude water baptism unites us with Christ, and it makes us share in his death and his, his resurrection. This is where I think a lot of confusion can occur if you don't recognize there is the real thing and there is the sign of the real thing. And baptism is the sign of the real thing. Is water baptism necessary for salvation? By no means. Probably the easiest example I can think of is this. Many of you, most of you have been to weddings and, and the heart of a wedding is the covenant. Wedding is a covenant. And so the heart of the wedding are the promises, the verbal promises that the husband and wife enter into with each other. And then, to symbolize that covenant, rings are exchanged. Now, putting this ring on my finger does not make me married. If I were to put this ring on my son's finger, he would not become married. And technically speaking, if my wife and I exchanged our vows and there was no rings, we would still be married. It would just be an awfully odd marriage wedding without rings. But the rings don't make you married. Taking my ring off doesn't make me stop being married. And putting a wedding ring on doesn't make anyone married. 
It's the sign of the covenant. It's the sign of the invisible real thing. The invisible real thing were the covenant promises my wife and I made to each other. But you can't see those. If you were there, you could hear them. For anyone who wasn't at our wedding, this is the visible sign that you get of our marriage. That's the way baptism works. Baptism is a visible sign. Today we're going to see a visible evidence of something no one but God can see. The work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. Is water baptism necessary for salvation? No. Now it's true, and we read this earlier in 1 Peter 3, the baptism of the Holy Spirit saves. And again, this accounts for much of the confusion among people who think water baptism is necessary. They'll go to some passages that look like, uh, sure, looks like water baptism saves, but I think it's often because of the confusion of what are we talking about? 1 Peter 3, 21, he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And if you just stop there, you say, aha, Pastor Jeremy's wrong. But then Peter says, not the removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Oh, we're talking about spiritual baptism. Yeah, exactly. And so it's absolutely true that without the work of the Holy Spirit placing us in the body of Christ, without the work of the Holy Spirit uniting us to Christ and his death and his burial and his resurrection and the newness of life, without that, we are lost. If you have not been dipped by the Holy Spirit into Christ, then you're still in your sins. You're still apart from him. And you're lost. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit the, the, the movement, the placement of an individual from, from darkness to light, from, from this world to in Christ, absolutely is saving and necessary and absolutely needed. But the sign of that event is not. And I'll give you two examples. We looked at one already. We won't even turn there. Cornelius. Who would dare to say that Cornelius, having received the gift of the Holy Spirit, by which we cry, Abba, Father, working miraculous supernatural gifts, who would dare to say that he was not yet in a right relationship with the Lord until he was baptized later. Of course not. That's silly. While Peter was speaking, the Spirit came upon Cornelius, the spirit of of adoption and sonship. And the thought that the Holy Spirit could fall upon someone like that and they could be God's enemies, they could still be in their sins, they could still be alienated from him is is silly. Or another example, turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I really want to hammer this point because the gospel, the announcement that Jesus Christ came to earth and lived a sinless life, he died on the cross for our sins, he rose again on the third day, the gospel calls us to repentant faith. The gospel calls us to turn and trust Christ. It doesn't call us to do anything. And and Paul is really rather emphatic on this point. So we're going to look at the example of Abraham. You've got the example of Cornelius and his household that we've already seen. Let's look at the example of Abraham. Romans chapter 3, verse 27. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. By the law of faith. Now get this. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Justified meaning forgiven, pronounced innocent, legally found to be without guilt. One is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, the God of the Gentiles. And so then in chapter 4, Paul is going to try to back this point up. What does he mean by works of the law? And he goes to Abraham as his example. Verse 1. 
What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham is justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as gift, but due, which is to say that if you work for your employer, and at the end of the week you get a paycheck, you don't need to thank them for that. They owe that to you. It's obligated. It's not a grace. It's a payment. So if you work for something and you get it, it's not a grace. It's, it's, it's due you. In fact, in our country, you can take someone to court for, for not paying you if you've done work for them. Now, the one who works, his wages are not counted as gift, but as due, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David, also speaking of the blessing of whom the one the Lord counts righteousness apart from works. Then he quotes Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, now we're going to look at this issue with Abraham and, and circumcision. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? And, and the reason why Paul's using this example is this. The old covenant had a sign, much like the new covenant has a sign. The sign of the old covenant was circumcision. The sign that appears to accompany the new covenant is baptism. And so Paul, speaking to new covenant Christians, is going to use Abraham as an example. So even though we're not strictly speaking of baptism, the, the, the parallels work here. And enough so that Paul believed Abraham was a sufficient model to prove his point. And so here's the point. How then, verse 10, was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? And what Paul is assuming is that we all know our Old Testaments, and we know that Genesis 14 occurs long before circumcision, that, that the text where it says Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness took place actually years prior to the institution of circumcision. So when the Bible says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, he had not received any sign or symbol of the covenant. And then Paul, extrapolating from that, says, he received the sign of circumcision, verse 11, as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness could be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So the point is simply this. Paul is saying it's always been this way. Covenant signs have never saved anyone. It's always been justification. It's always been forgiveness by faith alone. The covenant sign of circumcision saved no one. And it came after Abraham was announced to be righteous well, in the same way in the new covenant, the covenant sign of baptism saves no one. The spiritual reality of baptism is the one that's significant. And finally, if you go to Galatians, and please do turn here. This is, this is so important. The reason why I'm belaboring this point is because there's a great danger in altering the gospel. <laughs> There's a great danger in altering the gospel. Now, the question we're looking at is, is, is baptism necessary to be saved? The question in the first century was, is circumcision necessary to be saved? But we see the similarities between the two. Faith plus this ritual sign. Faith plus this ritual act. 
And I'm making a big deal of this because Paul makes a big deal of this. Now in Galatians chapter 1, normally Paul comes out with these big greetings. Here in Galatians 1, Paul comes out guns blazing. Galatians 1 verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and returning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That's the word anathema or damned. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So you go, whoa, this is a big deal. Okay, so what constitutes another gospel? How, how big was the error? How far off base were the Galatians? We'll turn to chapter 5 and see. And Paul, using the absolute strongest and harshest language he uses anywhere in his writings, defending the gospel. Because as he said, to make a different gospel is to make a non-saving gospel. There is no other gospel. And so in chapter 5, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. He is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by law, you have fallen away from grace. You catch that? The, the, the Galatians, these Judaizers, are coming down from Jerusalem, and they're saying salvation was faith plus circumcision. And Paul says, if that's what you believe, and if that's why you get circumcised, you're going to hell. That's what, he's, that's what severed from Christ means, right? Fallen from grace, severed from Christ, Christ will be of no advantage to you. It's that strong language. Now, it's true, here he's talking about circumcision, he's not talking about baptism. So I can't be absolutely dogmatic on the point, but for those who teach that baptism is necessary for salvation, I've got to really be worried that they're falling under this error, I'll let God deal with it. I won't pronounce anathema on them. But it seems rather significant. This is no small issue. Faith alone and faith plus baptism are two different things. And it's really important to be clear on this. It's really important to be clear on this. Baptism administers grace to the extent that any act of obedience administers grace. But baptism itself doesn't magically bring us nearer to Christ. It doesn't give us a little extra zip in our spiritual life. It's an act of obedience. It's a symbol. It's a sign. It's important. And the last question we'll get to is, well, is it optional? And the answer is going to be no. But please don't think it saves. In fact, I made a point to meet with everyone who's being baptized today, and I asked them a couple of questions. But the first question I asked them, and there's only one right answer, is why do you want to be baptized? And the right answer, which every one of them gave me, is I want to be obedient. I said, amen. And the wrong answer would be, well, I want to really be certain that I'm going to heaven. I want to really know that I'm a Christian. Well, then I'd encourage you to go get on your knees and do some business with God. And then come back, and we'll be happy to baptize you. But baptism isn't going to bring anyone closer to God who isn't already close to God. And it's not going to save anyone. It's faith coming from a genuine heart of faith. 
towards Christ that unites us to him, that saves us. So baptism does not save. What does it do? It serves as a visible public sign of an invisible spirituality. Now you can flip over your notes. Who is baptism for? Who is baptism for? And the answer, I'm going to argue, only those who profess faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only those who profess faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So sort of recap, there are the two big things people argue about or disagree about is what does baptism do? I've argued, well, in and of itself, nothing. It's a sign, it's a picture, it's a testimony to something that does something, the Holy Spirit's baptism. Next question, okay, who's baptism for? And now the division is between, is it for believers or is it for infants? And whereas the last disagreement I said was really significant, I really fear that the people on the other side of the issue that faith plus baptism saves, I really am concerned that they might be guilty, that they might be doing the same thing the people in Galatians are doing. I want to make it clear that whereas I don't think biblically we should be baptizing babies, I don't think this is keeping people out of heaven. I don't think this is a, this is an intramural, this is an interfamily discussion. Many men and women who I admire, who I want to learn from, are baptized infants. So I'm going to argue against that, but I want to make it clear, this isn't something we should be dividing over, breaking fellowship over, damning people over. No, not at all. So why should we not baptize infants? Why should we not baptize infants? Well, the first reason, there's no command or example to be found anywhere in the Bible of this. Just simply put, there is no command and there is no clear example anywhere in the Bible of anyone other than believers being baptized. There just isn't. Now, sometimes the infant, the pedo-baptist or the infant-baptist position will try to point to the household baptisms. But if you zoom in on them, and we won't have time to go to them, but I'd recommend that, that CD at the back, which is free, or the book that's in the bookstore, will go into each one of those case-by-case, case, the Philippian jailer and his household, Lydia and her household, um, Cornelius and his household. But there's no clear examples. They'll try to squeeze babies in there. But, but to be fair, given that the book of Acts is all first generation, we would expect the predominance to be believer's baptism. The book of Acts doesn't necessarily stick around long enough to see what those people did with their children. But nowhere in the epistles does Paul instruct Christians to baptize their children, to baptize their babies. It simply isn't in the Bible. It's not commanded, nor is there a clear example found anywhere in the Bible. In fact, the, really the primary reasoning behind this is, and, and if you listen, I've got a debate with R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur, and R.C. Sproul will freely admit there are no examples, there are no commands of this. Yet, the argument goes something like this. Israel was told to baptize, to, sorry, to circumcise their children. And the church was never told to stop, so we're just going to keep giving them the sign of the covenant. That's really the logic at work. Um, the logic at work for baby baptism is you gave the sign of the covenant to the kids in Israel, so until we're told to stop, we're just going to keep doing it. And that's, that's, I don't think, a very compelling argument. So there's no clear command, there's no clear example found in the Bible. Secondly, if we did this, then the sign would not reflect the reality. We've looked at what the sign is a symbol of. Remember, it's a symbol of crying out to God. I need cleansing. It's a symbol of I am sharing in the death of Christ and his resurrection. And it's, it's a symbol of entrance into the body of Christ. 
Well, if you were to baptize a baby, what you would be saying in effect is this baby has cried out to God for a clear conscience. This baby is united by faith in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this baby has entered into the local church. It just doesn't hold up. You, You can put a wedding ring on my son. He's not married. You can baptize an infant. And until they personally exercise faith, they're not justified. Until they personally turn to Christ, they're not reconciled with God the sign would not reflect the reality. And third, the church is not Israel. And again, this is another big point. We're not going to go into this, but all the logic behind infant baptism really depends upon the assumption that the church is Israel. So whatever Israel is supposed to do, we're supposed to do. And since Israel circumcised their kids, well, then we should be giving baptism to our kids. And the church is not Israel, and if you paid attention when Pastor Gary taught through Romans 9, 10, 11, it was very clear that God has one people and there's one gospel, but on earth there's distinction and God has plans for national Israel that are separate from his plans for the church. The church is not Israel. And the reason why I want to stress this point is there are a number of people today in today's baptism who will be baptized after having previously been baptized as an infant. I was baptized as an infant in the Catholic church. And a number of the people being baptized today were baptized as infants, and they've come to believe that um, the Lord requires them to be baptized as believers. And the logic behind that, again, is simple. You know, if my son put on a wedding ring at, you know, eight days old and wore it around, and eventually grows up and he marries someone, his wife would probably like him to put on a new wedding ring. Right? That makes sense? The sign is supposed to represent the reality. And so when the reality occurs, let's... Give a sign. Let's give something for people to see to say this person has been placed in Christ. This person has been cleansed. This person has entered the body of Christ. And that's the logic behind it. We even have an example in Acts 19 of of Paul re-baptizing some men who were baptized by John the Baptist but hadn't actually heard the gospel. And so Paul preaches the gospel to them and they believe and then he baptizes them again. So there is biblical precedent for that. And you can look that up in Acts 19. But we've got to move on. To our final question now, is baptism optional? Because remember, I've argued that baptism is not necessary to be saved. It's not necessary to be saved, but is it then optional? And you can write next to that question mark, no, it is not optional. Briefly here, we'll look at this. Jesus commanded it of all who believe. Jesus commanded it of all who believe. We're familiar with the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus commissions with all of the authority that he has, and he has all authority. He commissions the disciples to go out to baptize, and that's exactly what we see at Pentecost in Acts 2 and all through the book of Acts, the apostles calling, commanding men and women to come forward who've expressed faith to come forward and be baptized. They don't, it's not just an invitation if you'd like to, if you feel comfortable. It's those of you who believe, come forward and be baptized. You know, a lot of times well, churches love baptism classes to tell people who are about to get baptized understand what they're doing. And that's great, but Paul had no problem explaining baptism to people who'd already been baptized. The New Testament has no problem saying, well, baptize you first and we'll explain it later. That's, that's no problem for the first century church. 
So either way is fine. But it's commanded of all who believe. Secondly, it's usually the first act of obedience. It is usually, in the New Testament, the first act of obedience. You just think of, of Acts 2.28, where Peter is preaching Pentecost, and the men, we are told, are cut to the heart. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so he doesn't even separate the two. He's like, Repent, believe, because repentance is, is turning from something, and faith is turning to something. If you're turning to Jesus, you're repenting. You're turning from whatever you're trusting in. So in the New Testament, they'll, they'll just repent, believe, believe, repent, repent and believe. It, it's, it's, it's interchangeable there. So Peter calls out repent and be baptized. He doesn't make a big distinction. It's not repent, start an eight-week class. It's just boom. If, if, if you're convicted... Turn to Christ and come forward and be baptized, is what Peter is saying. Or we saw the example of the Ethiopian eunuch, who while he's even speaking with Philip, says, look, there's water, Let, let's, let's do this. And they go. The New Testament places baptism as the, the first, or frequently the very first act of obedience. Third, point C. And it's the fundamental, fundamental way of showing oneself to be a Christian. It's the fundamental way of showing oneself to be a Christian. A Christian. You know, in the first century, the way you showed you were a Christian wasn't by the radio stations you listened to, the t-shirt, the t-shirts that you wore, right? Um, that's not how they did it. How, how did, in the first century, how did they show the world, show people that they're Christians? They came forward and got baptized. And in, in Acts 2, it's in the middle of Jerusalem. I mean, all of Jerusalem is watching, and 3,000 people come forward to be baptized. Um, we saw the Ethiopian eunuch just, let's do this, right in front of his men. And he's, he's, a, he's a leader. He's got servants. And right in front of all of them, he humbles himself and gets baptized. And all through the book of Acts, that's what we see. This is the fundamental way of showing oneself to be a Christian, such that in Acts 2.41, the way they kept track of the records in the church were the number of people baptized. There simply was no category in the first century church for unbaptized Christians. I'm sure they exist. I'm just saying in the Bible, it doesn't exist. If you believed, you came forward and got baptized. Now, I understand here that this is something you may not have been taught on. This is something you may not fully understand. And I hope that today this will become more clear. But I would suggest to you that a Christian who's not baptized would be about as odd as a wedding ceremony without rings. A person who's been married who doesn't have a wedding band. Now, that could be simply they're not aware of the cultural significance. They're not aware of what wedding rings do and serve. But still would be rather odd. And that's sort of the way the Bible treats this. So if, if you're here today and you've been united to Christ by faith, if you've come to believe in him, and since coming to faith in Jesus, you have not come forward and been baptized, we'd love to talk with you. We'd love to schedule another service. One of our... Um, one of those who is to be baptized was Allison Rolak, and obviously she won't be here today, so we will be scheduling another service. So I'm sure Allison would like some company, not be the lone person. So you can talk to me or one of the elders. We'd love to, uh, to, to help you do that and be obedient in that way. And finally, and the final point here, is baptism demands a consistent life. It demands a consistent life. Turn back to Romans 6, and we'll close here. And this, I think, is sort of the so what. For those of you who have been baptized, this is the so what. What for you? For, for, if you're here 
and you don't know Jesus Christ, don't worry about baptism. Worry about knowing Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you, you haven't turned to him in repentance and faith, if you haven't entrusted yourself to him in his death, don't worry about all this baptism stuff. You just deal with Jesus and God. Now, if you have turned to Christ in faith, and you haven't been baptized, we'd love to talk to you, help you be obedient in that way. And finally, for those of you who are united to Jesus Christ by faith, who have been obedient in baptism, this is, the, this is a word for you. Baptism demands a consistent life. We go back to Romans 6, and everyone looks at Romans 6 to discuss what's going on with baptism, but really, you're missing the main point of the text. The main point of the text is the question asked in verse 1, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? You know, if God gets a lot of glory from forgiving sin, then, man, I'm giving him a lot of opportunity for glory, aren't I? In fact, I could go, I could go give him a lot more opportunities this afternoon. That was sort of the logic that some people were, were coming up with, and Paul's trying to refute that. Shall we sin that grace may abound? And he argues based on baptism. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And what he's saying is, you died to who you were. You died to that way of living. And, and there's a symbol, there's a sign that shows that. You, you were baptized by the Spirit, and you, you were went through a, a rite or a symbol to show that, you're dead to that way of thinking. Verse five, for if we've been united with him in his death like his, shall we, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You've died to the mastery of sin in your life. If you're saved, then, then you died to your old slave master sin. So how can you live like you're still a slave to sin? Now, if we have died with Christ, verse 8, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. What, what Paul's saying, what I would say to you is this, as you struggle with sin, as you think about sinning, remember what baptism symbolizes. Remember that you died to that way of living and you've been set free. Don't live like a slave. Don't fall into that old slave mentality. Well, my desires are telling me what to do. I guess I gotta obey. No, you don't. If you've been baptized by the Spirit, placed into Christ, you have the power to resist. So I would put it this way. Live like you've been baptized by the Spirit into Jesus Christ. That's, that's how Paul argues this. Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? No, remember your baptism. Remember what occurred. Remember the reality that took place. Remember the power that is now yours. Remember the transfer of dominion, the transfer of authority, and live that way. Live that way. Well, I'm gonna call the worship team up for our final song. I just wanna celebrate this gospel, and I can think of no better song to do it with than amazing grace. This this salvation that we have been given this <clears throat> work of the spirit in our lives and we're going to celebrate in just a few minutes the work that God has done in the lives of seven brothers and sisters here so would you please stand and sing with me amazing grace my chains are gone